I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Mike Boris and this is Straight Talk. My career is now so old Leonardo DiCaprio, I would not date it. (laughs) (laughs) Will Anderson is one of Australia's most successful comedians. I remember my mother, without her, comedy doesn't come into my life, but my 17th birthday took me to see uh, Billy Connolly at Hamer Hall. Who buys those huge, big Toblerones at Heathrow? Perverts! I'm not a religious person, but when people talk about that moment where they experience a calling, where they feel like this is where I'm meant to be, I had that that night. The host of ABC's popular and long-running show, Gruen, and his podcast, Willosophy. Will's ability to blend critical thinking and comedy has carried him to the top of his industry. My major defining feature in a way is that I don't have any confidence and yet I do things regardless. Now that, to people, is terrifying. So my mum took me to see Billy. Not great tickets, you know, we were up the back, 3,000 people there. We were probably only about 10 rows from the back, but... When I was sitting in that room that night, I was there was a part of me that said, this is what you're meant to do. Now, that's a ridiculous thing. To look at one of the greatest comedians of all time working on stage as a 17-year-old kid from a dairy farm and think, hey, I reckon I could do this. That would be the scariest thing to ever have to do. And thank God that people feel like that because that is the only reason people pay me money to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Will Anderson, welcome to Straight Talk, mate. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Mark. I appreciate it's it. It's so good to have you in here. Um, and, and like the real life version of Will Anderson, as opposed to the version I see on te- television, or actually I've seen you at gigs too at various events. Um, and I'm really interested to talk about your book, which we'll talk about in a moment. But how the hell does someone become or build a a lifetime career as a comedian? Like, where does that all start? Yeah, well, I, I don't know is the answer, but I'll try to give you an answer anyway because it would make a terrible podcast. So you're already being funny. Said, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know how it happened. Well, I but it's funny because said- <laughs> I asked Nick Giannopoulos the same question and he talked about racism. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's interesting to be. So I grew up on a dairy farm in country Victoria, like tiny little dairy farm too. So um, family farm, you know, my grandfather was a farmer, my dad's a farmer, my brother's a farmer. Still. Still. Uh, dad and brother run the farm together still dairy? to this day. Dairy, milking cows. That's a milking, tough one. 
300 cows, uh, you know, in the morning and the afternoon every day. And um, on a road called Anderson's Road, which is named after my grandfather who built oh, cool. the road by hand after the Second World War. And so after the Second World War, they gave farmers, returned soldiers, like land that mm. was part of like to rebuild yep. Australian industry. And so Anderson's Road was part of that. And uh, dad has managed to move in his entire life. He has managed to move about, I would say, 750 metres down Anderson's Road from where he was born to where he's lived for the last, you know, 60 odd years. And uh, he always wanted to be a farmer. He, from the age of about 14, he was really, you know, passionate about being a farmer. And so as you could in those days, he actually went out as a teenager on his own and, you know, really started his own farm. I mean, he was just down the road from the the parents, but like, you know, really had his own space and his own farm and started to build his own life there. And around that same age, I think around 14, you know, when I'm the eldest child, so obviously the eldest child, you know, normally the responsibility is that particularly in farming communities, the eldest child is going to be the one who takes over the farm. And I think around age 14, my mum and dad started having an inkling that maybe I wasn't going to uh, be the one who took over the family farm. You why, know? why do you think, why is that though? I mean, what, what were you saying, listen, I'm going to move out or I'm going to go to university or I want to go to a, a college somewhere else? I mean, or do you just say, fuck that, I'm not going to I'm not going to go and milk those cows? I mean, I think it's mostly the latter. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was, I remember, you know, I particularly when I left home, skipped forward a few years, and I remember telling my dad, I said, you know, I'm off. I'm off. And they were very supportive, by the way. You know, my dad became a dairy farmer not because his parents wanted him to be a dairy farmer. He became a dairy farmer because he had a passion for farming and it's been his lifelong passion. And I've got to say that they wanted the same for their children. Like he wanted me to find what my passion was and pursue my lifelong passion. And if that wasn't farming, then they were fine with that. But I remember making a bit of a speech that when I, cause I didn't know at that stage what I was going to do with my life. And I said, but I know that I don't want to get up at five o'clock in the morning anymore and milk cows. And I remember when I landed at Triple J, which was my first big media job doing breakfast radio. And, uh, my alarm was set for 4.30, but at 4.20, I got a uh, call uh, from my father and I. Uh, he said, you know, good luck. I know it's your first day at school, uh, first day at uh, your new job. And uh, and I just wanted to wish you luck. And I said, oh, that's great, Dad. I said, what are you doing? And he said, just going back to bed for another 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so the comedy starts there. <laughs> so I think it was easier to, for about three or four years, I used to get up at, you know, before school you know, five o'clock in the morning, go down to the dairy and milk milk the cows in the morning and then come home, have a shower, get on the bus, which would take about an hour and a half to go into sale, which is where I went to school. And uh, I would have a nap on the, you know, the bus on the way into school. And that was the dairy farmer's life. You know, that was really, and I really, you know, people often say that stand-up comedy is a hard job, but when you've grown up on a dairy farm, you know what an actual hard job is, you know, like, you know, nobody... Nobody claps, you know, when you go to work at five o'clock in the morning to milk cows. You can't send a less experienced farmer out to warm up the cows for you before you go out there. It, it's a hard life. And summer and winter, winter be freezing. And so freezing in the winter. Yeah. This is how cold it is in the winter. So if you are, so basically uh, there was a rotary dairy. So you load the cows onto one side of the dairy. It goes around like a lazy Susan basically. Yep. And then on the other side, somebody takes the milking machines off. Now, the hardest bit is putting the milking machines onto the cows. Yep. So that would be dad around that side, putting the milking machines onto the cows. The easiest bit is getting them off the cows. All you have to do is click off the suction and they basically just fall off and you have to catch them. But the thing that you have to watch out for is that uh, after the cows have uh, been milked, that is the time that they also like to relieve themselves. 
And so if the tail went up, you had to sort of be quite nimble to get out of the way. (laughs) One morning it was so cold in country Victoria in the middle of the winter. When the tail went up, my brain said get out of the way, but my body said no, it will actually be warmer to be covered in cow urine (laughs) (laughs) than it will be to get out of the way. And it just stood me there in a dairy golden shower just to warm me up in the morning. So, yes, it was particularly cold in the winters uh, uh, growing up there. But I did that for a few years and and certainly learned you know, how to be, you know, I rode a motorbike and learned how to, you know, fix a fence and, you know, check the water and do all these things that farm kids learn how to do. But I never had a passion for it and I never had an aptitude for it. You know, like sometimes people pick those things up very instinctively once they're shown something they can, you know, they understand it. And I actually have that capacity in a lot of other ways. You can explain a concept to me and I can, I think probably the thing that I've been best at in my life is I have quite good comprehension. You can explain something quite complex to me and I can repeat it back to you in a simple way. Yes. In a conceptual sense. But in a physical sense, in a practical sense, that is not a skill set that I have. You could show me how to repair things, you know, five times and then the next time I go to repair it, I'll be like, how do you do this again? So I knew that it wasn't, it did not come naturally to me farming. If I was going to choose farming as a living, it was going to be something that I was always going to have to work even hard. It's a hard job, even if you, if it comes to you naturally. And I knew that it certainly didn't come to me naturally. By the way, working on a farm, because I got a farm, working on a farm is definitely caricature. You get good traits out of it. What have you got from that that you reckon you carry forward into your comedic life into your business life what have you got well I think partly like you know you really do learn that like sometimes you know things are beyond your control that's one of the biggest things you know that weather conditions these sort of things farmers it's not just that you have to be a farmer but you have to be a farmer and then a drought comes along or you have to be a farmer and then a flood comes along you know these conditions that you have absolutely no control over or a bank comes along right you know, or interest rates go through the roof yeah. and suddenly, you know, the because most of these farms have incredibly big mortgages if you're talking yep. about a business sense because so often, you know, like a, a tractor is a, not a cheap investment, you know, yep. like a hay baler is not a cheap investment. Like, you know, a dairy can cost millions of dollars, you know. So often, you know, you've got huge financial overheads. So the, your capacity for business, like these are small businesses, but they are Small businesses where the people running them are not making a lot of money, but the investment that has to go back into the business can often be huge amounts of money. And they you know, borrow it. And they borrow it and then have to spend, you know, decades often paying it off, hoping that, you know, you can keep your head above water long enough that you can pay off the dairy. And then when the technology improves, you have to do it again. I mean, my family recently updated it all because for years when I would go home for Christmas, the joke would always be on, you know, Christmas morning, do you want to come down to the dairy with us and milk this morning? And, of course, I never did want to do that, but it was the joke that Dad and, and my brother would oh, yeah, always go with. Now they wouldn't even invite me down because I wouldn't know how to do it. It's all, you know, the cows all have computer chips now and it's all hooked up to a system. And as they, cows go in, they know which of those cows individually milk. Like it used to be a system where basically – you milk them until they went round the circle once and if they were still milking, you'd send them round the circle again. Whereas now all the computer chips, you know, so if the cow's out of milk, it'll just turn off the milking machines. It all goes into a computer program where they can say, this cow's, you know, down this week, maybe we've got to feed them more or maybe they've got some disease that we should look into. And so you can actually track the individual performance of each of the cows, you know, how much milk they're producing, you know, how much feed they're getting. This is all, you know, so from a business point of view, 
it's absolutely a small business where money was always an issue or it's always something that was talked about in our family. Given it is, a, it's a tough business. It's, it's, it's a tough life, but it's a tough business. So I understand that they love the lifestyle mm. or they have a passion to be a farmer. I get it. Um, and I understand you've got to borrow money and all this stuff, but what is it that drives them to stay in there? Is it just a lifestyle or is it they just say, this is what I do? This is what, this is what I do. I, I milk cows. I, I think I've thought about it more with my brother. I will say. So when I was growing up, you know, my dad is very much a, um, you know, stoic in the traditional sense in that, yes, I think it is just what he does. He gets up in the morning, he has a simple, you know, look at life. Like you, know, you get up, you milk the cows, you work on the farm, you work outdoors, you can see the practical results of what it is that you do, you know, like it, it is all very tangible, you know. Um, and I think he appreciates that and he likes his community. You know, he was always hugely involved in, you know, local sport and the community and, and that was the way that he lived his life and it's the way that he's been happy to live his life and he still is very happy to live that way. My brother went off first and did other things. You know, he had, had uh, you know, he's a trained chippy. He travelled the world, used his skills, you know, did the traditional thing that young Australians will do of go and work on construction sites in London but use that as an opportunity to do, you know, four weeks on a job and then four weeks in a van around Germany and those sort of things. And then he chose to go back to the farm. So through his eyes, I've seen more of like why is it that you would do this and I do think that he did choose, like a lot of it was to do with the lifestyle. He loves, you know, being out in the, you know, field in the morning when the sun is coming up. You know, he finds that beautiful. He connects with the natural aspect of that lifestyle. You know, he thinks it's a great, you know, place to raise his family. You know, he has a you know, big property and you can have a pool and they can ride motorbikes and, you know, have an outdoor lifestyle and have a boat and, you know, like, you know, drive it around the lake and, you know, kind of enjoy life in the way that he enjoyed life when he was growing up, you know, the things that he enjoyed doing. So I think it was absolutely a choice for him to, to go back and adopt that as his business. And I think it absolutely had to do with the lifestyle aspects of it. I will include my mother in this conversation too because sometimes good idea. Well, sometimes I think women get left out of this conversation and I've been guilty of this myself. So when I, I remember when I was about 12 or 13 and, um, you know, the discussions around feminism were more like the, you know, bra-burning hippie style of feminism. And uh, I remember I, I was saying to somebody, I was a young teenager, and uh, I remember saying to somebody that my, my dad's a farmer and my mum's a mum. And my mum just said to me, she said, you know, I'm a farmer too. She said, you know, I do all the books and I look after the business and when, you know, dad needs a hand with like, you know, practical aspects of the farming. But she said, this is all the farming. Like the bit that he does out in the field is absolutely part of running the farm. But the bit where I do all the accounting and make sure everything adds up and, you know, do our taxes and all that is also running the farm. We both work running the farm. And that was my first real revelation that I was like, oh, yes, right, my mum is a businesswoman, you know, she she helps my dad, well, her and my dad run this small business together. He does more of the practical aspects of running this small business and she does more of the non-physical but equally as important or perhaps even more important aspects of running this business. So I became aware very early that both my mother and father were running our farm. Is there a hint of extra stoicism, I don't know your mum, but from what you're saying, I'm just getting this sense. There's a sense of stoicism and extra stoicism there that your mother possesses relative to making the joint happen. Yes. 
Is I that mean, right? if when you look back, you realise that she absolutely was the person who held it all together and continues to hold it all together, really. She, yes, that's right. I mean, without her, none of this happens. And without her, you know, to get back to your original question of where did comedy come in, without her, comedy doesn't come into my life because my dad, you know, dairy farmers, uh, like breakfast radio hosts, go to bed early, <laughs> you know, particularly if they have to get up during the middle of the night and, you know, irrigate or do these things that farmers have to do. And so often dad would be, you know, snoring in bed at, you know, 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, you know, he would trot off to bed, you know, listen to something on his wireless and, you know, drift off to sleep. And so I remember, you know, as I came into my teens, you know, I reflect on this now and I realise that my mum was probably a bit lonely at night. You put the kids to bed and dad's already in bed at a pretty early time that she was probably often a bit lonely at night. And so obviously I started to get to that age where you can stay up a bit later and you are able to enjoy some of the adult things that she might enjoy. And for us, that was ABC TV comedies. So it started with things like The Young Ones and Blackadder, you know, a lot of Ben Elton shows originally, and then oh, Faulty Towers and shows like that, you know. And then eventually it moved on to shows like Andrew Denton's The Money or the Gun, Theatre Sports. Um, the Big Gig was a really uh, hugely uh, popular and important show in my life. And you can draw a direct line between, I mean, yeah, the big gig was, uh, you know, produced by uh, Ted Robinson, who Ted Robinson ended up producing Good Newsweek, and he was the producer of my first TV show, The Glass House. And uh, Andrew Denton, of course, was the co-creator of Legend. Gruen, and you know, and, and the uh, the original producer of Gruen. So, you know, I sat watching those shows with my mum at thirteen and fourteen in you know Denison in country Victoria, and then not knowing that, you know, twenty years later, that those two people who made those shows would be you know, two people would help me make the sort of shows that I would make in my life. So, um, you know, without my mum allowing me to do that and to share those moments with her and part of the joy of it at the time was, you know, part of it was that I was being introduced into this new world of this comedy and things that I wasn't quite probably meant to be seeing yet and there's an excitement in that as a young person. But part of it was that it was a bond that my mother and I had together. You know, this was something that we had. This was something, a relationship that she didn't have with dad. He didn't watch these shows with her. She got joy out of watching these shows, but I got joy out of not only watching the shows, but getting to watch them with my mum. And fast forward a few more years, I'm about to go off to university to study journalism, and uh, which was what I thought I was going to be doing with my life. And it wasn't long before I was going that my mum, and I'd done a bit of comedy and theatre sports and, you know, a few things that and I, I'd become passionate about being a fan of comedy at that point. Like I was consuming a lot of it, but I certainly wasn't thinking that it was going to be a career choice. I mean, at that stage in Australia, comedy, apart from probably a handful, maybe a dozen maximum people, wasn't a career choice. There wasn't. It was like running away to join the circus. So there was no, <laughs> you know, I always, I joke that the first person I ever met in show business was me. You know, there was no one around my area that you were like, oh, I want to be a comedian like this person who comes from where I am. That just wasn't something that you imagined in any way. I only ever imagined that I could be a fan of it, not like actually do it. So it wasn't on my radar in that regard. But I remember my mother uh, as a birthday present, I reckon, for my 17th birthday, uh, took me to see uh, Billy Connolly at Hamer Hall in Melbourne. So three-hour drive down in the car with my mum to see Billy Connolly, who I was just a you know, huge fan of. Like, you know, back in those days, you could only find a few 
uh, comedy came on, you know, records or cassettes and it was mostly Monty Python or Billy Connolly or, you know, the 12th man, Rodney Rude. I was going to say Rodney Rude. Yeah, you know, that's, yeah, exactly. That, that, that's, that was what it was. There you know what I like? You know what I, you know what I hate? <laughs> you know what I hate? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we knew all those things off by heart really though is the truth. And so my mum took me to see Billy. Not great tickets, you know, we were up the back, 3,000 people there. We were probably only about 10 rows from the back. But I remember sitting in the room that night and seeing this man speak for three hours and seemed to be completely off the top of his head, you know, to a to, to me. And, like, he was in this big theatre, 3,000 people there, and there was no band and there was no, like, magic and there was no, like, you know, set or props or other cast members. It was purely just a man entertaining 3,000 people with nothing more than his imagination. Like he was doing something that we all do for free every day and he was just so good at doing that that people would pay to go and see him talk, you know, to, to listen to what he had to say. And I remember I'm not a religious person but when people talk about that moment where they experience a calling, where they feel like this is where I'm meant to be, you know, I had that that night. I remember sitting in that room and just thinking I've never, whatever this feeling is that I'm feeling right now, I've never felt like this before. What age were you? Around 17. And I remember looking around the room, you know, there's people probably from 14 to 74 in that room and they were all just people that if they met in the foyer would, would have nothing in common. They wouldn't even know where to start a conversation and yet they were all united in this moment by this man and they were all just laughing and there was so much joy in the room. And it's such a weird thing to say. It's not weird to say now, but it's a weird thing to think then because I had no right to this thought when I was 17 years old. But Why, What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, when I was sitting in that room that night, I was there was a part of me that said, this is what you're meant to do. Now, that's a ridiculous thing. To look at one of the greatest comedians of all time working on stage as a 17-year-old kid from a dairy farm and think, hey, I reckon I could do this. Like that's and I was embarrassed by that thought probably in a way that it took me then another four or five years before I actually tried it. You know, it wasn't like I immediately went home from that gig and decided I was going to be a stand-up comedian. But I do know that at least in my head that night, there was a part of me that said, This is it. This is whatever this is. Is it you wanted to be the dude? who's entertaining 3,000 people or you want to be the dude who is uniting everybody from various walks of life or did you want to be the guy who was making a career out of this and making lots of money? I didn't even know that was an option, the third one. Right. Um, I think there was probably a little part of me that thought wouldn't it be cool to be that guy but I think it was mostly the sense of, whatever this is, you know, this comedy thing. Yeah, like I want to be this, part of it. I want to be part of this. Yeah. I, I didn't necessarily know that I was going to be the person up there on stage, but the actual industry, yeah, that this thing, I want to be around this industry in some way. I want to be around a job where your job is to provide people with joy, to unite people in this way. That was definitely the prevailing emotion that I was having. But like I said... I still went to university and still studied journalism and worked as a journalist. So it wasn't, you know, one of those moments where I suddenly went, no, I'm going to go and try to be a stand-up comedian. No, I just knew from that moment on that, like, 
comedy was something that I had a, a particular passion for. Have you ever shared with your mum that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have. And, and in, in, in more than that, I have. So when Billy Connolly last toured, which was his last tour that he was ever doing, because obviously, unfortunately, he has Parkinson's now and his health has deteriorated quite badly and he's not performing anymore. But last time, uh, everyone was already aware that it was going to be the last time that he toured Australia. And I made a special um, uh, effort to go to that show with my mum. It was at Hamer Hall, the exact same venue that we had originally gone to. Uh, much better seats, it turns out. It turns out I can get much better seats to a comedy show these days. You have advanced. I made a few calls. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, so I was able to take my mum and my partner and, and my best friend to, to, to go and see what was going to be his last ever show. Um, it was funny, though, I was just recently looking up the date of that first show, just literally this week. I, I, I was curious because the thing I was curious about was like, I wonder how old Billy Connolly was when he did that show. And it turns out he was about the same age as I am now. And, wow. and And that was just, I don't know why that was interesting or powerful to me, but I think sometimes when you've been doing something for a long time, you can feel quite old, you know, almost like you're, you're going towards the end of your career rather than the start of it. Whereas when I think about, you know, what, what Billy was like then and what he managed to do in the next, you know, 20 years from then, you know, I, I, it actually gave me quite a lot of hope and confidence for maybe what what I could do for the next 20 years as well. And is hope and confidence important for Will Anderson? Is that something sometimes you as a, just as a, as a person or, or as a comedian, in fact, do you ever get to a point where you lack confidence or, or you just feel a bit uncertain about where you're going to go from here? Is that, a, is that an issue for you sometimes? I, this might be a weird thing to say and I hope you understand me when I say this, but it is a weird thing to say. So I actually think that I, my major defining feature in a way is that I don't have any confidence and yet I do things regardless. Now, maybe that's... In a reckless sense or like, well, sorry, not recklessly, but fuck it, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think that I've ever been particularly confident about, like, I've absolutely surpassed any ambitions that I had, you know, in comedy. Like I've never had, like I said, I never really had that idea of like I could be that guy up the front of the room. I just kept... I guess, being presented with opportunities along the way. And I never really thought that I could do these things, but I always thought, well, if somebody else thinks I can, I might as well give it a crack. And that's really, I don't, like those two things are often competing in my mind. I, I rarely feel confident about my capacity to do anything. In fact, if anything, I'm much more aware of all the flaws that I have and, you know, the the things that I am not good at, you, you know, I'm super aware of. But it hasn't stopped me from doing things. For some people, that is like really debilitating. Like a lack of yeah. confidence will stop them from. And then there's the opposite, right? The people who are superbly overconfident and don't have anything to back it up. Yes. I think that I live in a world where I really don't have confidence. And it wouldn't surprise me at any point, you know, that if somebody came along and said, oh, hang on, there's been a horrible mistake. <laughs> you know, this is... You're dreadful. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this is... But until they do that, if you know, if the opportunities arise, then then I guess that I will try, you know, try to do the things. And that's, I mean, you know, 20, 
27 years later or whatever it is now, like since I started, you know, it, it, it continues to roll on and people continue to present me with opportunities to do things. But I don't think that I've ever felt particularly confident about anything. And I still, the funny thing is that I ha- can't, I could look at my career. If, if my career was someone else's career in comedy and you wrote down on a piece of paper all the things that they'd done, the awards they'd won, the television shows that they'd created or books they'd written or stand-up shows they'd done, there's just no doubt that it's a successful career. Like oh, the, I, 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 the brief tells uh, me that. I mean, you, yeah, you've won the, all these awards. Yeah, the evidence is there. You know, I'm the highest selling act in the history of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. No one has ever sold more tickets at that festival than I have. And yet, when I look at my career from me out, like me outwards, not outside inwards. Yep. It doesn't feel like that at all. It always feels like it's a joke by joke proposition, you know, that so that's a real contradiction and it's one that I've just over the years, it used to bother me and now I've just accepted that that's how I'll always feel. Is that a humility? Is it? Is it? No, I, mean, I don't you- think it is even humility. I think it's, I mean, I do think it's part of, you know, the, being raised on a dairy farm. I was there is say, that sense of 100%. I know what real work is. Mm. And I know that I am very lucky to have got to do what I've got to do. And I don't think, because I think false humility is a kind of, you know, I mean, I'm not that person either. Like I'm willing to say here are the accomplishments that I have, like I'm not going to overly egg the pudding of like, you know, looking for somebody to compliment me like by being falsely humble. But I am also going to be honest with you that, you know, when I look at my own career internally outwards, it's all about what's next rather than what, I've done, I guess. That's maybe that's a better insight into it, which is I'm always much more interested in, okay, that's done. Maybe here's a more practical way of looking at it that people might understand. When we make Gruen or any of the television shows, we I like to make shows that are on a weekly cycle. That's normally the shows that I like to make. And what that basically means is you start your week on a Wednesday, you, you have a meeting about what the show is going to be, and then during that week until you film it on a Tuesday night, that's how you make the show. So in an episode of Gruen, we start on a Wednesday and we it goes to air the following Wednesday night, but we tape it on the Tuesday night. I am there at the taping, clearly. I host the taping. I've, I never watch the show. My job is done as soon as I've delivered the show. It's not like I'm ever going to read the book, you know. I My job is done once I deliver the pro. And then, then it belongs to the world. It doesn't belong to me anymore. And to be honest, I don't care about it anymore in that sense. I care about, okay, we've got to make next week's show. And so the idea of, I have this new show on the ABC at the moment called Question Everything, and I created it. Like it's literally, I created the show, I put everyone together, and I've never watched it. Like I'm there when we tape it, you know, but after that, it is the editor's job to turn it into a show and then it's the hopefully the audience's job to engage with it and enjoy it. But is I it don't because you're too it. nervous to watch it? No, it's not even or that. Or you don't care? I'm just not interested. I've done my bit. Yeah. The idea of making something to watch, I'm not making it for me to watch. Yeah, yeah. I'm making it for other people to watch. And now it's time for me to make something else for other people to watch. Like, you know, I write a book for other people to read. I don't write it so that I can get some pride out of, being an author, I go, look, I've written a book. I mean, I have, yeah, people, even like, you know, awards and things like that, I don't have them. I think my management probably have them in their office, you know, things like that. But that's not 
why I make things. I make things A, for people to enjoy and because I like making things, that's part of it. Like I like making things. I want people to enjoy them and I want them to do well enough that I get to keep making things. But other than that, I don't really, my my ego or my self-worth isn't involved in like how successful things are. Some Sometimes the things that I've enjoyed making the most have been, you know, some of the least successful things that I've done and sometimes some of the more successful things I've done have been things that have not necessarily brought me the same enjoyment. It sounds very transactional. Uh, like it's uh, like you're, you're making shows as a transaction or you're doing gigs as a transaction. Once you've done the transaction, you're looking for that, you're on to the next transaction. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. You being disrespectful, I mean, you don't disrespect your craft, but it's about. Yeah, it's not transactional in the way of I don't care about yeah, no, it no, and no, I move no. on yeah. to the next thing, but it is absolutely transactional in this was the point of it. Yeah, correct. You know, transactions done. What's yeah, the next one? In that night that Billy Connolly entertained, you know, he didn't realize that he was you know, changing my life forever. He just went out there to make a room full of people laugh. What he also did that night was change my life forever. You know what I mean? But like that would be too much for him to take onto stage every night, the idea that there's going to be somebody. But there might always be one person in your audience that you could do that to or you could influence. I know. And if you think about that too much, you'd be incapable of doing what it is that you're trying to do. It'd become overwhelming? I think it would be, yeah. I because it, it would it would check into your confidence a little bit too. Like, should should I be doing this? Is, am I am I the right person to do? Do I have the right to do this? I remember it's funny you because when I did the, the the Celebrity Apprentice and The Apprentice, I didn't watch any episodes, not one. But it was only mainly because I felt cringy towards watching myself on television. It was the weirdest feeling. I, I just felt really uncomfortable. I just didn't like the way I was. I, not, not not the way they present me. I'm not having a good go at the show. I just meant. Is that really me? Like uh, mm. I, I couldn't watch it. Well, but, but and 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 it's not really you, particularly on a show like that, well, you're where performing. they absolutely trying to make you a character. Yeah, you know, yeah. well, I was a character. I was in yeah. character. Yeah, that's right. I mean, but even with my projects, you know, I are you in character in the Gruen? Yeah, are you, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. how much of it is different between you and the real very world? different? Like, but. From project to project, that's the case. Yeah. I am one of those people who doesn't believe that I need to bring every part of me to everything that I do. I like to do enough things that I feel like every part of me is being expressed, but I don't feel like I need to bring every part of me to everything I do. Are you hiding parts of you or you're you're just saying, I don't need to bring every part of me? Is there something uh, you don't want everyone to know that you both. keep to yourself? Yeah, no, I think both. Something you want to own yeah, as absolutely. opposed to sharing it. I mean, you know, even in the book, like it's about the last two years, but- it's not the worst things that happened in the last two years. In fact, the book is dedicated to my dog that died prematurely and my nan who died during COVID who I didn't get to see. And yet um, I don't discuss either of those two things in the book because they are, for me, those stories. You know, they're not for public consumption. You know, the book is about that period of time and things that I am happy to share. Gruen, I have a job. I bring the aspect of me that is important to making that show work to that job. You know, in stand-up, you get to see... Yes, a part of me. But if you see me do stand up, and like sometimes you'll have someone see you do stand up and they'll like, they'll contact you afterwards and just like, oh, well, you're on the same page. I'd love to have a drink with you sometime. And just like, I'm like, no, you wouldn't. Cause that's the yeah. most interesting 70 minutes of things that I have to say for the entire year. Yeah. And I've condensed them all into one. You would find me incredibly boring and long winded in real life. You have seen a distillation of, you know, the most interesting things that I have to say in an entire year and your 
expectations of who I am and what I am would be completely out of whack with actually who I am and what I am. And so, no, I don't, I've, I've, the, the expression that I use, and it's just for me really more than like a public thing is like, I'm not running for office. I've yeah. never been a person who cares about everybody getting what it is that I'm trying to do. That's not what I do. I think that I'm good at bringing to a project what the project needs, not what I need. And that is actually a very employable skill because if you are willing to put your ego aside to serve the project as opposed to making it all about you, then there is a much better chance that the project is going to be successful. And I have always had the opinion, particularly with comedy shows, if the show is funny, people think that everyone on the show is funny. The only time that people are counting who got the most laughs is if it's not working. Then it's like, I got more laughs than this person or I did better than this person. But if the show's working, it's all working. And when it comes to stand-up, which I find like completely confronting, if I had to do it, I, could, I just could never do it. But um, if just, And thank God that people feel like that because that is the only reason people pay me money to do it. Well, <laughs> but when I think about you or, say, Vince Ranti or, um, you know, if we can go right back to Rodney Rood and those sort of people, um, and, and even ostentatious as well, um, I find it to be really scary. I mean, I look at him and I think, oh, actually, I'm, I'm laughing. Oh, I'm going to go and then I think, and then I reflect and I think, shit, that would be the scariest thing to ever have to do. Oh, no, of course it's scary at the start. I mean, part of the reason that. Every time? No, absolutely not. And you, to the point where if it was, I mean, for some people, it still is. Like you hear those comedians who, you know, vomit before every gig. This will scare you. I do completely improvised shows. Earlier this year, I was at the Enmore Theatre in front of 1,500 people and I did 90 minutes of a show where I completely improvised every word of that sound. So you just show. turned up? I turn up and I walk out and I talk to the audience and I riff and I blah, 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 like for an hour and a half. Now that to people is terrifying, right? And there would have been a point in my life where to me that would have been terrifying. Now that's exciting. To me that is like that's almost what I need now to like engage with that level of me, you know, to, to really get that excitement. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You mean to fire yourself up. Yeah, I mean, it's I, the way I describe it often is um, it's like jumping out of a plane without a parachute and realising that you're going to have to learn how to fly on the way down. And it's exciting. You know, it really is. It, it gets me. And the audience know that too. They know that 
you know, it's comedy without a safety net. So there is an engagement from their perspective as well that makes it super exciting. But yeah, of course. No, I mean, I've there have been, you know, things in my life where on stage I've frozen or, you know, been oh, really? extremely nervous beforehand or forgot what it is that I was going to say. But I mean, not for a long time. You know, I embrace the idea that sometimes I will get things wrong and I think once you put aside that ego that there would have been a time in my life where I was held back by the fact that I would have described myself as a perfectionist and I realised at some stage that people who describe themselves as perfectionists, it's often an ego thing because what you're really doing is saying, like even entertaining the idea that I could do something perfectly is wrong right? I don't think I've ever done anything perfectly. And the fact that you you would stop doing something just because you don't think that you could do it perfectly is just a dumb idea to me. Like, you know, I don't think I've ever done anything perfectly. And it, I just try, like, try to do it the best you, you can do it. And so as soon as I got rid of that idea, the idea that I needed things to be perfect, it was a lot easier to, you know, go out there and not be afraid of times when it wasn't perfect. And then I realized there was a point I got to where not only was it fun to dig yourself a hole, but it was incredibly fun for the audience to see you then try to dig yourself out of that hole. Your dad, Mr. Anderson, identifies himself as a farmer mm. and he's very happy with that. Mm. In other words, the story of your dad or Mr. Anderson is that, um, you know, like in terms of the way his brains work, his brain work, I am a farmer, I do farming, that affirms with his brain that he is a farmer and he continues this process until he could never change because he's always now mentally in a brain sense, the way his brain works and the synapsing and the way the neurologically he works, he's a farmer. That's mm-hmm. his story. That's the story about him. Is Will Anderson identify himself as the comedian? I mean, I do. Yeah, I think the, the truth is and I'm not sure that's, you know, <sighs> Sometimes I wrestle with that idea, you know, like what are you other than this? And particularly like, you know, in COVID when, when it went away. That's what I want to talk about. That's where I'm leading to. the idea it. of, and that's, you know, a lot of, that's what I tackle a lot yeah. in the book is the idea of what happens when the thing that was, it confronting? was always part of you suddenly isn't there anymore. Yeah, so I'm t- like I've known farmers mm. who have lost their farms because of banks have taken it and then they've committed suicide. Mm. They've become manic. I can say that. Yeah. Like, I mean, and look, there was times during – you know, what happened. Like, I mean, so uh, the, the book starts April 2020. April 2020 would have been my 25th year in a row at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, meaning that my career is now so old Leonardo DiCaprio would not date it. <laughs> and so um, uh, that was the one thing that I knew was in my diary every year. A quarter of a century, more than half my life. Every April I would be at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. It's where I started doing comedy and I had grown to you know, six times be the people's choice, which means you've sold the most tickets at the festival. So six years at that festival, you know, I was the highest selling act at the festival. And so to from go from like a kid, you know, performing to maybe like 80, you know, 80 people, you know, over a week to, you know, selling out, you know, you know, thousands of seats a night at that festival. It was the thing that was the spine of my life and the spine of my career. And of course, it was one of the first things that went when, COVID, when we realised that COVID was not just going to be an overseas thing, it was going to be something that affected us in Australia, the Australian Grand Prix and the Melbourne International Comedy Festival were the two big, first two big major events to go. So this thing that I thought was always going to be there that was my anchor was suddenly 
not from there. under you. Yeah, I, lo- I lost a month of work in a day, and I lost a year of work in a week. And so, book, so just to explain, because I think it's important to explain this: gigs, anything to do with entertainers, particularly um, anyone, any artists, everything just disappeared. So everything, everything got cancelled. Well, comedy in particular, because comedy. By its very nature, you are inviting a group of people into a room to get them to expel fluids from their mouth as often as possible. Yeah. The funnier you are, the more likely you are to be a super spreader. So, yeah, yeah. like, comedians like to boast that they killed, but we don't actually literally want to kill people, you know? I, You know, I work for the ABC. A lot of my audience just dies of natural causes, so I've got to <laughs> hang on to a few. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it went away, and it went away for a considerable period of time. Like, over those two years, I really only got to do a handful of shows, and there was a point where I considered, is this ever going to come back again? Is there? And look, it still isn't back in the way it isn't to this day what it was before COVID. So we are still in a period of it, you know, readjusting and coming back and to see what it will look like when we fully emerge from the pandemic, whether it'll ever get back to what it was previous to the pandemic. I'm not sure necessarily that it will. And, you know, as a comedian, just in a very practical sense, like the idea of you three years ago, you had told me that I would be comforted by the fact of walking out on stage and seeing people with like mufflers over their faces. <laughs> you know, as a comedian, you want to hear laughs. You don't want someone with a silencer on their face. But obviously, you know, when I particularly when I first went back to shows, you know, it was compulsory for the audience to wear masks. And and you were comforted by that because that was the compromise that we were making so that we could actually get back there and start to, you know, do it again. So yeah, everything that I had learned to rely on. Um, take for granted. And things that defined you? Yeah, the things that defined me. And I had been, the period of my life, see what you've got to understand about the comedy industry in Australia is that you look at the people like Nick Giannopoulos or Richard Stubbs or, you know, Wendy Harmer, these sort of people who were really the first comedians in Australia who, you know, external to media commitments made it like, you know, a full-time job, something that was like actually you could go, I'm a professional comedian. It really was just a handful of people. And then I've been lucky enough that from when I started and then developing through when I've done it, it's become an incredibly successful industry. I mean, like, you know, I studied journalism, but if a kid came to me these days and said, should I be a journalist or a comedian or work in comedy? I'd say work in comedy. There's more opportunities. You know, you you don't have to be on stage. You could be a producer and an agent, a publicist, a, you know, operate a camera, work, you know, behind the scenes on a podcast. There are so many aspects of how you can involve yourself in the industry now that, you know. Because it is an industry. Because it is an industry. Yep. And I've been very lucky that I was not there on day one, but the growth of the industry has happened alalongside the growth of my career, you know, like each step, you know, and some of that obviously I have contributed to. Part of the reason yeah. that comedy has grown as an industry is because like there was a, you know, a, a, a generation of comedians, myself and Husey and Hilsey and Rove and, you know, Michelle Laurie and, you know, a bunch of these people who came through all at the same time who would go on to forge media careers and have television shows and like, you know, become big stand-ups. You know, when we first started out, the idea that the biggest selling acts at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, they were always international acts, you know, imported acts. And now if you went to the Comedy Festival, the biggest selling acts are all, all Australian acts. That's happened in my lifetime. I was part of that happening, but I was also a beneficiary of the fact that that thing was happening. You know, those two things happened at the same time. And so it had almost been 
entirely a upward trajectory, really, you know, both my career and the industry. Like my career's had ups and downs, but to be honest, not a lot of downs. You know, because like- I remember once talking to Julia Morris and one of the reasons that she went on my show was actually to resurrect her career um, as, well, just in any way. And because she was having a dreadful time in the US um, trying to be a comedian, a particularly Australian comedian, and uh, effectively she was on the bones of her ass. And uh, but she was able to, you know, get on the show and blah, blah, blah and ends up having a whole lot of TV shows. You know, they're not comedy shows but they're sort of funny shows, if yeah. you know what I mean. She's funny. She's fine. She's yeah. great. She's there's grouse. shows where she can be funny. She's grouse. Yeah. Like she, she's such a good talent in a show because yeah. she, you can always throw it a comedy when you've got a dull spot. Well, I mean, I think that's in some ways her, her greatest skill. And I know Julia well and love her to death and saw her a lot because I was also in LA at the same time that she was there. I would spend about half my year over there. She was pursuing a different thing yeah. than I was. See, I I love doing shows and so I travelled to over half of the states in America over 10 years and like did like, you know, live shows in each of the cities and worked as a stand-up comedian, which is really what I like to do. And so for me it was a, a brilliant time and, you know, really if, if, if it weren't for my fears around travel and COVID and the American health system, you know, I'd probably go back and 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 do it again because probably the proudest I've ever been in my life in a business sense is that I got to the point in America where that if I, if everything else had gone away, I could have earned a living just being a live touring stand-up comedian in America. And I just was like, you know what? I feel like to me more than anything else that I've done in Australia, it was the time that I felt like I've proved something here. I started it from scratch and I worked my way up to the point where I could just do no other job. If everything else went away, I could just exist as a touring stand-up comedian in America and I was quite proud of that. You know, not like a huge amount of money in the grand scheme of things but like, you know, like, you know, like a a working wage. A good good living. A good living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, doing a job that I loved. And the great thing is also like really – like, you know, my lifestyle at the time was so brilliant because, you know, you go to Chicago for a week of six shows, you're working an hour a night, you've got the rest of your day. Oh, you might go and, you know, do a spot on Good Morning Chicago or something, but the rest of your day is your own. You know, you'd get to see, you know, this country, get paid to do it and then work an hour a night in a comedy club. It was it was brilliant times. But I've been lucky that I never had what you're talking about when it you comes to Julia. downtime. I've never had that real really? downtime. Wow. And part of it was because that stand-up is my first and foremost thing. So whenever there was downtime, I would just go and do more stand-up. You know, if I had a gap in between things, I would just go and do more stand-up. I was never reliant on my TV career or radio career or any of these things because my stand-up career was the first and foremost thing that I did. So this is why these last two years... Because the truth is, even during these last two years, like I still had the television shows. I obviously got commissioned to write a book. It wasn't like I was even during that time completely without a way to earn my income. But what I was without was the thing that I had always considered my bread and butter, the thing that was the basis of my business. Like I said, my anchor was my stand-up. The How thing dangerous that I, is that though, defining yeah. yourself like that? Well, I mean, when it goes away, you are, you suddenly are aware of how dangerous it might be. What happened to you? What 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 what, what actually happened? To you? I mean, I, I presume it's yeah. in the book because I've only just got the copy of the book. No. But yeah, what, yeah. what did I happen? I mean, to the you? book's all about it, basically. Yeah, That's yeah, right. Yeah. But uh, in a simple sense, I've trained my brain. The way my brain works, as much as I can 
as much as you can observe your own brain, as much as you can have a sense of what it is that you do. I remember once on Gruen, I was asking uh, Todd a question about an advertisement and a particular thing in an advertisement and he just turned to me in frustration and he says, he just went, I don't know. And he said, the people who made the ad don't know either. He said, there's (laughs) no one in the world who looks at these things in the detail that you look at these things. And that is true. Like my brain works in a way that at work they won't put anything in front of me because I'm a real fiddler but not just am I a fiddler. I love to take things apart, tear them apart and then try to put them back together again either in the way they were originally to see how they work or in a way that pleases my eye and my mind more and that is how my brain works. That's where my comedy comes from. Often I'll just take an issue and I will tear it apart, you know, some of my frustration in the world, something that I'm, you know, that's why obviously with Gruen we do that a lot. I look at advertising and marketing and I tear it apart and then I didn't try to pick at the pieces and say, why is this? And like, and then put it back together in a way that is hopefully amusing most of the time, but it was also interesting or, you know, is the way that I see the world more. Like why can't this be more like this? And this is, I'll show you how it could be more like this. Now, if you've trained your brain to for 24 years to every year look at, because all my shows are each year is what's the world look like and what does my place in that world look like? That is a simple summation of my show every year. But different year. every year. But different every yeah. year. But the main theme is always look at the world, look at yourself, what is your relationship to the broader world? That's always what my shows are, they, they their simplest form. If that goes away my place where I funnel that energy and information and the way my brain works. You can't just switch off 25 years of making your brain work like that. So instead of looking outward, it looked inward. My brain basically turned in on itself. And I write in the book about the idea at the start of the pandemic, I had friends who were actually quite enjoying it. They were like, it's nice, isn't it? Like I'm binge watching some TV shows. And I said, oh, I'm binge watching every decision I've made to this point in my life. And I'm not sure I like the lead character of this show. I wish they'd replace him with somebody else. So um, I definitely went on a, a rigorous journey of interrogating where I was at in my life and how I had come to be where I was at in my life. And, and proper interrogation was, or was it more a self-reflection, like um, just looking at what you've done or was it like no, why did you do that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm talking, we were, we're trying to get the secrets out of the terrorists before the bomb explodes style terror, yeah, you yeah. know, like interrogation, like real how has it come to this? Like even though, the you know, the factors, you know, the, it was much – much beyond my control, you know, what was happening in the world. In fact, it was completely beyond my control realistically. But that's that didn't stop my brain from saying, how, how, how did it come to this? How did it come to what? What's this? The not being able to work? Yeah. And I guess. But it was outside of your control. Yeah. But because so much of my life had been built around this idea that it would. All, I, I imagine it's what it's like if I'm so lucky that both my parents are still alive. But I imagine it's a little bit like losing a parent, you know. You just thought they were going to be alive forever and suddenly they're not there one day and life has to go on but there's just this hole there that can never really and you're like, now your career shouldn't, you know, feel like your parent but for me because it it had raised me. Like everything that I have in my life, every opportunity that I've had in my life had come from stand-up first, you know. 
like I've been very successful, you know, in television and, and, and you know, other things as well. But the, all those opportunities, books, radio, television, all those things came first and foremost from me being a stand-up comedian. And it always felt like, I guess as a farmer's kid, you know, you milk a cow, the milk comes out, you sell the milk and you understand that's a tangible thing. And for me, the most tangible of things was when I'm on stage and the audience, we were having a chat before we started about television and ratings and, you know, how where you are in a TV schedule can be affected by the show that's on before you and the show that's on after you and you can do your best to do a show and it can, st- like, whether it's successful or not can be completely out of your control in some ways. Whereas there was something about standing on stage in front of people, telling my joke, hearing the laughter. That's very real. You can feel it. You can know it. You can say, I can be reassured that I am a comedian by the fact that when I walk on stage and say something, people laugh. You but get what, a response. Right? Yeah. But what happens when there's no one there to laugh? Then if you've based your entire not self-worth because it isn't like that, but if you've based your entire foundation, you know, I can reassure myself. Again, I think this is partly because, you know, why I was so pleased with being able to build a career in America was there is a part of, you know, having a career here that you think how many of these people come because they like the TV show? How many of these people come because they liked me on the radio or they liked something else that I did? You know, uh, you can start to think, am I funny or are these just fans of mine who are, you know, laughing along? Whereas if you go to somewhere where no one knows you, you know, it's comedy tonight and you just happen to be the person who's on the bill and you can go out there and you can make them laugh. Well, there's no arguing with that. Like, you know, you're like, here I am. I am a comedian because I am saying things and people are laughing. That is, so when the audience goes away and, and you don't have that capacity to do that, one of the things I talk about in the book is you think of this show as being a collection of words, but the show exists. Like, I mean, when the audience goes away, when the gigs go away, it's not like the show immediately evaporates. I could tell it to you right now. I could have said it to the dogs. Like the show was a thing, but the show isn't a thing until you add the audience. In fact, I often think of the like myself as a comedian, I think I don't do a show I play audiences. The audience is my instrument Mm. and the show is like the pick or the bow, you know, the thing that I use to play the audience. It's why when you talk to a comedian and they say, how was the show tonight? You know, if they say, oh, it was a great show tonight or it was like, oh, it was a tough one tonight. They're not saying that it was great tonight, I got every word right and I nailed every impression and I blah, 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 blah. They're saying my connection with the audience tonight was great. They were, you know, in it with me. And if they say it was a tough show tonight, they're not saying- It was a tough audience. Yeah. They're not saying I forgot half the show. You might have done the exact same show as you did before. They're saying the audience was tough. My connection with the audience wasn't what I was aiming for. And so I never had thought of it that way until COVID. This is a new thought to me, the fact that I don't do a show, that I actually- play the audience and the show is what I use to play the audience. And that something was- you're looking forward to as well. You look forward to this event in yes. April. Yes. Can I just unpick it a little bit? Yeah, here mate, it's your podcast. Just, you do no, what no, you no, like no, to do. No, no, <laughs> Thank you. I'll keep talking endlessly, no, no, no. but no, you no, ask no, me whatever no, no, you want because I'm really cu- curious, Will, about this. I mean, if you thought this through, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but obviously when the audience laughs mm-hmm. or when someone laughs at one of your jokes when you're doing stand-up, um, 
your reward center in your brain says that worked. Mm. I connected with the audience. Uh-huh. And you get a bit of, you get a hit of dopamine or something, serotonin, some, some, some sort of drug gets ex- expressed in your brain. Mm. And have you ever thought to yourself that maybe you're addicted? The reward center has addicted you to the responses of your audience. And as a result of not being able to do the show because of COVID, um, that it, you were basically pining for that addiction. I mean, it was it was a big loss. Mm. No, uh, the truth is that I have thought of that and I think the answer is no. There is a small part of me that thinks that previous, to use that addiction analogy in a different way, is that I feel like beforehand I had built up an unhealthy tolerance. So you know how sometimes, you know, like yeah, the more someone drinks, eventually you have to drink more and more yep. to get the same buzz that you used to. I think that previous to this, there wasn't really the thrill in the connection that there was when I first started. You know, it had become like you. Re- it really had to be something special for me to feel it, you know, and enjoy it. And in fact, I'd spoken to people a little bit beforehand about the fact that like things were going better than they ever had, but I really wasn't getting that same thrill. And that's partly where the improvised show came from. That's partly where working overseas came from. I was looking for new challenges, things that would- Or more stimulus. Yeah, more stimulus, you know, things that would engage me, you know. In a, I mean, look, absolutely the improvised shows are absolutely an example of me going, what's the hardest thing that I could possibly do yep. so that I can get the- and look, there is a thrill-seeking element of me as well. Like totally. I was, you know, when I, certainly when I was a younger person, like, you know, I took, I was like a person who enjoyed risk-taking, you know, whether it be like jumping out of a plane or whether it be like, you know, experimenting with drugs or like whatever it was. Like there was an element of me that definitely was like, you know, attracted to taking risks. And I think part of that was, you know, I'd, I'd been raised on the, you know, the in the house that my, you know, on the road that my dad was born on and he's never drunk alcohol, never smoked a cigarette, you know, married the first woman he ever kissed. And, you know, there was a part of me that was like, nah, this is not for me. And then you almost go to the opposite extreme of that, which is like, well, I'm going to try everything, you know, I'm going to. Find out good. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to try everything and I'm going to like, you know, have every adventure and I'm going to, you know, to go and do a whole bunch of like things that, you know, perhaps I, I shouldn't do or at least they're really high-risk things in retrospect and, um, yeah, there's definitely an element of that and certainly I think that comedy, like stand-up comedy, yeah, there's got to be a part of you. I often say that the thing that stand-up comedians won't admit out loud and this is the thing that I like to say out loud all the time, which is that you've chosen to try and master something that you know is not, there is, you can't master it. You can't master comedy. It is some, you can, for a moment, you know, you can grab it for a moment. There can be a moment where, but this is like, even when you look at comedy from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it's why comedy can age so badly is because even if something was brilliantly funny at the time, when times move on, that thing is not necessarily brilliantly funny anymore. So even if you were mastering it at the time, it doesn't mean that that will be, you know, mastered forever. It is slippery and you have to keep, you know, trying to improve and you have to keep trying to master it and work it out. And am I addicted to that? Yes. Am I addicted to the audience um, applause? No, because I could get that in a whole bunch of different ways, like the reaction from the audience. Like if that was what I was in it for, there are other ways to get that, that you can manufacture that. But am I addicted to trying to work it out 
And then the way that I can test whether I've worked it out or not is to then put it in front of the audience. That's the only way that I can have a definitive answer of whether I have solved the puzzle or not. I can sit at home and think I've solved this puzzle, but really the test of whether I've solved the puzzle or not is whether I can go out on stage and show it to people and they agree that I have solved the puzzle. That's pretty cool. And 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 so what you get off on, so to speak, as a comedian, because the way you do this is through comedy, but is to look at a paradox and try and turn it into something that's really funny Mm. and relevant at the time. That's pretty cool. That's... So that's obviously an advanced version of where you are today. I mean, obviously, when you started off, it was probably was a bit of their thrills and. Uh, oh no! It was, yeah, yeah, I mean, then now it was you're just advanced. About being funny and trying to meet girls and stuff, like getting free drinks backstage, like that's what it was at the start. But this is also one of the things I think about life that's probably a pretty important lesson, which is the reason you start doing something doesn't have to be the reason that you keep yeah. doing something. And in fact, I think it often isn't. The people who are most successful at things, they might start, they might go into an industry or start a business or whatever it is for a particular reason. But the thing that keeps you doing it is, can can be something else that you didn't even consider when you first, you know, opened that door. So I think, yeah, I, I definitely, the things that motivated me at the start of doing comedy are definitely in no way the things that motivate me now as a as a comedian. And can I ask you before we close because we're running short time, but I know, I'm sorry, no, I am no, such no, no, a no, big no, talker. No, That's I love it. I love. I know. Actually, <laughs> I'm really enjoying. But I am not fine. Yeah. Thanks. Um, uh, it's nearly like Mary Cooster's thing is a, a good a thanks sort of. She says, <laughs> like, but what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, uh, I am not fine. Thanks. So interesting. Um, normally, I name all my stand up shows have a will pun in the name, and the reason is really practical in that. So I just signed off on next year's tour title and art, but I won't start thinking about what that show will be for another couple of months until I'm done with my current commitments with the television. I like to, you know, be thinking about one project. Well, normally I have about a a few projects at a time, but if they involve similar parts of my brain, then I need to separate them out. So the television show I'm doing at the moment, it's not something that I want to be writing stand-up at the same time as I'm doing. So the stand-up will come after that, but I have to sign off on the title and the art and all those sort of things now. So I have a standard file of names. I just go through it and I say, this is what the show is going to be called this year. And then I'll think about actually the show in a couple of months from now. With this book, it was very different. I handed them the manuscript and I said, I don't know what it's called. I, you you read it and then you tell me what it's called. There's a routine in there about me um, when people ask you how you are. And in the old days, you know, the before times, you would just say, "I'm fine, thanks." Mm, that's but, very, that's very country. Yeah. That's very farmer. But in the but in the year 2022, it's very hard to say, "I'm fine, thanks." Like mm. you know, I was well, like, in, "How are you fine? How really? Did you wake up from a coma this afternoon and you haven't checked the news yet? How could you be possibly fine in the year 2022?" And they came back to me with the title and. Funnily enough, every single thing in the book is kind of about that. It is about, you know, the book is about the thing that was my spine going away. The book is about moving to the anti-vax capital of Australia at the start of a global pandemic. It's about, you know, um, my frustrations around, you know, the climate and the things that we could be doing, you know, as human beings versus like the things that, you know, some of the richest people on the planet are actually spending their money on instead of the things that like I think would be good for humanity. And then, it, it finishes with like being caught up in the Northern Rivers floods. So I'm on my way back to Melbourne to do my first show since, you know, it all went away, April 2020. It starts in April 2020 when it all goes away. And the final chapter is 
I'm finally going back to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival to do, you what know, this February, show. February, March uh, 2022, was it? So, April, yeah, so it would have been the end of March, you know, 2022. Yeah, just uh, the Northern Rivers. Yeah. Yeah, so like, yes, yeah, so I would have been like mid. So I was in Adelaide when the first flood happened. Yeah, but then I was when the second flood happened. I and was you're meant to be. Yeah, yeah, the second so flood. I was yeah, meant, the second flood happened. I was literally meant to be going to. In fact, I was at so uh, I was at a flood fundraiser for the first flood. Like Mandy Nolan, myself, Tom Gleason, Kitty Man, Flanagan. She, she's hilarious. The best. And hilarious. She, she had arranged this. Nice and raw, but hilarious. Yeah. We were up at Tweed Heads at the, you know, the casino up there, huge room full of people, big fundraiser to raise money for the people who've been affected by the floods. And that's the night that the the second flood happened. I drove back home. I barely got across the, the creek and the bridge and the bridge washed away the next day. I was Because my got smashed yeah. in the second. And I was meant to be going to Melbourne for the comedy festival. So this was my big return to the comedy festival to do this show. Uh, were logical. Um, I ended up getting there, but it took a week because we were lo- we were reined in for yep. a week, and so um, that's that's yeah, kind of the end of it is like me finally going back to this thing that I hadn't been able to do, and then you know the the weather getting away, the 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 flood getting in the way, and you know, funnily enough, like to kind of wrap up some of the things that we've spoken about today is like that show that I did, um, you know, were logical. Is by far and away the best thing that I've ever done. Like you know, I've, 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 those two years of being able to think about what I wanted to do with my comedy, to think about that idea of that you can't take it for granted. Like you know, I had had a practical example of the fact that when you go on stage, it could be the very last time that you get to do a show. You know, there was a year between shows that I did. You know, during that period of time, and like you know, I'm 48 years old. You'd hope that I've got plenty more years, but you're at an age once you once you get to like this age in life. If you die, people go, "Oh, that's a bit young," but they don't launch a coronial inquest. You know, what I mean? like, <laughs> they just like it's a thing that happens. And so there was a greater awareness of this thing that maybe I had started to not take for granted, but at least think was always going to be there. I came back with this renewed sense of every night when I went on stage, maybe this is the last time that I ever get and to do gold. this. And that has been, I mean, to me that has been powerful. And, I mean, the show, I mean, it won the best show at the Sydney Comedy Festival, it got an award in Melbourne, like not that those things are ways to necessarily measure how the show is, but certainly from my point of view it was like the, the proudest I've ever been of anything that I've ever done because I really felt like, you know, A, I appreciated every single time that I got to do it, but B, I was saying exactly what I wanted to say. I didn't care anymore about anything else other than if this was the last time that I got to talk to a group of people, what is it that I would want to say? And I think, you know, that the show was the closest that I'd ever got to telling that story. And the book is, you know, tells, you know, a version of, you know, it tells the story of getting to that show, but it also tells a longer version of, you know, what the show what the show became. When you were able to get out of Mullum and get down to to do the show and uh, and as you said, become much more appreciative of that ability, the, the capacity to do this sort of thing. Did you cast your mind back to the very last time you saw Billy Connolly when uh, he probably knew he had Parkinson's and he may never do another show here again? I think about it a lot, honestly. I think about him a lot. I um, Could you imagine that? I remember at that gig, he comes out on stage, everybody knows, um, and it's one of the you know most sustained 
rounds of applause that you've ever heard, you know what I mean? Like, you know, the love, the thanks in the room, you know? And I remember him just like after it all, I doubt him just going, like he just said, and I won't, I can't, can't do accents, I wish I could, but um, he just said, ah, you're only, you're, you're only doing that because you know I'm fucking dying, you know? And it was just like, yes, of course. Like that's what he would say in that moment, you know, like he, he recognised that he's a comedian and he wants to um, laugh. But there was obviously that sense in the room that we all knew that, like, it was partly about coming to see a show and it was partly about coming to say thank you for all the entertainment that he provided us for all those years. And I think about him so much. You get to be an adult. I remember when I was at university and Kurt Cobain died. I'd been lucky enough to see Nirvana. I hadn't planned to and I'd been taken to a gig and they were on just as they were kind of coming through and, it, you know, it had kind of formed this attachment to them and felt like, you know, as you do when you're young, you're like, I'm part of this story, you know, and they're my favourite band. And when Kurt Cobain died, I remember I was in Canberra at university and I was in a share house and Triple J were playing a retrospective to Kurt Cobain and I was in the bath listening to it and then, I unplugged the bath, and but my, my body was incapable of getting out of the bath and I just lay there, kept listening to it, but I just couldn't move. I was so incapacitated by the death of this person that I didn't even know. You become an adult and you realise that, you know, real relationships are much more important than parasocial relationships and you think I'm probably never going to be affected by a celebrity's death in the same way as I, you know, I was sad when Shane Warne died. I knew Shane and... You know, like I also grew up with Shane, watching Shane as we all did and, you know, you're affected by someone like that dying so young but you, it's not like I sat, you know, in a bath, you know, like not being able to move. But I think of Billy Connolly's death a lot. You know, I think of, I've, like I've almost had to prepare myself for when it happens because I know how distraught, you know, that thing about like, mm. you know, like losing a parent. I feel like he's the parent of my professional life I feel like that it wouldn't have happened without him and when he's not there anymore like I do I do I think about it all the time and I I really wish I've met him and uh, and look I had the opportunity to but it was quite young in my career you know I had the opportunity to say thank you but I'd really like to say to him that you know like people have enjoyed what I've done. You know, I've had like a, you know, really like nice comedic career and a lot of people have been entertained by what I did. And I'd like to be able to say to him, like, you did this. I mean, I know I did, you know, part of it too. Like I'm not, I'm not diminishing that, but I did it because he, he lit that, you know, he lit that spark in me and he, he, I, not only did he entertain millions and millions of people all over the world, but the amount of comedians, not just me, there's like, I mean, this is a story that like a hundred comedians will tell you about how Billy Connolly was the person who made them want to be a comedian. And so not only did he entertain all the people that he entertained, but he also subsequently entertained all those other people because he created all those other comedians. And so when he goes, yeah, I'm going to, there's just going to be a hole there. And I hate the fact that I'm never going to get to see him live again on stage. You know, I'm never going to see. I think he's the greatest who's ever done it. I, I don't think there's ever been anyone as good as comedy as he is. And, um, yeah, I yeah, I do. I, I think about it all the time. I know I made that answer more about him than it is about me, but I do. But that I is think about, about you. It, yeah. But that is about yeah. you. In the end, 
Yeah. What you just said is about you. Yeah. Will Anderson, thanks very much. Thanks well, very right. much. Thanks for your honesty, mate. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.